Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would make us know the path that we are walking is one of walking through a land that's not our home, but it's leading us to a homeland that's far superior to this one, to a new heavens and new earth that you will make for your people who are found in Christ. Make us confident in your word now, trusting in your promises. I pray that you would solidify our confidence to believe your word as it is written, as you have revealed it to us. And those storms of life may come, though skepticism comes from our world, though temptations come, Lord, I pray that you would make the ballast of our souls be the promises of your word and strengthen us in these things. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, please take your copy of God's holy and perfect word and turn to Genesis chapter 46. Lord willing, we have this sermon and three other sermons in Genesis and we'll be finished. Genesis 46. Here's the main point of the sermon that I want you to see in the text. It's a mouthful, so if you're a note taker, be ready to write, I'll say it a couple of times, but I think it'll be clear as we progress through this text. Main point being this, God's future promises are trustworthy because of his fulfilled promises. And his fulfilled promises give you eager anticipation for his final promises. God's future promises are trustworthy because of his fulfilled promises. And his fulfilled promises make you have eager anticipation for his final or ultimate promise. So you have future promises of God that are still to come, that are coming every second, giving you new breath, they're coming. But future promises way out in the distance. You have fulfilled promises that you can look back on of God in the past. And you have what I'm calling God's final, his ultimate promise of what will come in the final days. God's future promises are trustworthy because of his fulfilled promises and his fulfilled promises give you eager anticipation for his final ultimate promise. That's what we'll see flow in the text this morning. And so just so it's a mouthful, just so I can illustrate what the logic of that point is, I want to give you this illustration from the beginning. I'll do so by talking about school and a mother's promise to her children. So kids, let's say that a new school year is about to take place. Now I know it's coming to the end of one, so don't be too afraid. It's not a new school year, but let's just say a new school year is about to start and a mother comes to her children and she says, kids, I'll give you two promises. The first promise is, on every last Friday of the month after school, we'll go get ice cream. And then at the very end of the school year, after all the months are complete, we'll take a weekend trip to the beach. So you hear future promises of at the end of every month, at every last Friday of the month, we'll get ice cream after school. And then one big final ultimate promise at the very end of the school year we'll take a beach trip to celebrate the end of another year. 
And so every month comes and she keeps her word. The last Friday in August comes and you go get ice cream. And then the last Friday in September comes and you go get ice cream. The last Friday in October comes and you get ice cream and then November comes and this is the last Friday and do you expect to go get ice cream? Yes, why? Because she has kept her promise in August and September and October and so now you know that she has fulfilled those promises and so she will do this one as well. And then you go through all the months and you get ice cream every Friday, every last Friday of the month and you get to the very end of the school year and you are excited because you have been waiting with eager anticipation because you remember what her final promise was. At the end of the school year, we'll take a beach trip. Do you expect she will keep that promise? Of course, because she kept her promise in August and September, October, November, all the way through the school year why would she now break her final promise? I hope you see the logic of that point that her future promises to get ice cream each month are trustworthy because of the fulfilled promises of the past. And all the fulfilled promises of the past give you eager anticipation that her final promise will be true. And it's the same with God. His future promises are trustworthy because of his fulfilled promises and his fulfilled promises give us anticipation for his final promise. Another way to put it would be like this, God's future grace that's going to flow to you is going to come because of, you know, of his past grace that has flowed to you and all of his past graces that have flowed to you give you anticipation that he will give you ultimate grace to bring you home. I wanna show you each layer of these promises of God in our text this morning. It means nothing of what I say unless I can show you in the scriptures his future promises, God's fulfilled promises, and his final promise. And in doing so, I hope that your faith will be strengthened in God's faithfulness to you. I won't read the entire chapter in its entirety, but I will read sections of it so you'll wanna keep your Bibles open. I'll start with God's future promise to Jacob. So if you have your Bible open, 40, Genesis 46, starting in verse one. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Let's stop here. You'll want to remember right away where we are in this famous narrative of the Bible. Joseph and Pharaoh are in Egypt and they have sent his brothers back to get his father, Jacob. If you're just joining us, maybe you haven't been with us as we've been going through the book of Genesis. Perhaps you're familiar with this, one of the most famous narratives in the Bible, J Joseph and his brothers. 10 Hebrew brothers sell their younger brother, Joseph, into Egyptian slavery. 
They tell their father, Jacob, that he's died in the field. And then Joseph spends the next 20 years or so of his life in Egypt experiencing successes and failures both. In God's providence, Joseph is eventually elevated to the second highest command positioned in Egypt. And also in God's providence, a famine now strikes the world. And all the nations of the world are coming to Egypt to buy food. And so now 20 years after selling Joseph into slavery, the brothers come to buy food without realizing that Joseph is the one who's going to be selling them the grain. And it's through Joseph's grace to them that the brothers are reconciled after all these years apart. And now they're going back to their homeland to get Jacob, their father, to come see Joseph, who is actually now alive. So chapter 46 of Genesis picks up with Jacob beginning his travels to Egypt. He's leaving his home. He's finally going to see his son. And it's here at the beginning of verse chapter 46 that Jacob takes everything he owns and heads to Beersheba, which was a stopping point on the way to Egypt. At Beersheba, verse one shows us that Jacob begins to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now, Beersheba is an interesting place. It's an important place in the story of the patriarchs of Genesis. We'll see for several reasons. But first of all, this is the place where his father Isaac had built an altar to the Lord back in Genesis 26. You can remember that maybe as we walk through that passage. And so now Jacob comes, he's on his way to Egypt. He comes years later, he stops at Beersheba. He's making sacrifices to God on the very altar that his father built. It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He's worshiping God through this sacrificial act of gratefulness. For so many years, he thought his favorite son, Joseph, was dead. And now he's on his way back to finally see his alive son. And on his travels, he stops at the very place that his dad built an altar. He's making sacrifices on it. And it's like it hits him. God has been so kind to our family. And he expresses it, his gratefulness through an act of sacrifice. And then in verse two, it says, and God spoke to Israel which is Jacob's other name God gave him. You remember, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Just as God had spoken to Abraham and Isaac and as he had previously spoken to Jacob, now he speaks to him again and he says, I am God, the God of your father. And you can imagine Jacob is looking at this altar that his father had built. Yes, I am God, the God of your father who built this altar that you're making sacrifices on right now. I'm the same God. He's looking at the altar where his father worshiped and he's meeting this God in worship at the same place. And notice what God says to him. I am God. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now that's an interesting command because we have no evidence of Jacob being afraid. The text doesn't say he was afraid. God simply says, do not be afraid to go to Egypt. Why would God reassure him, do not be afraid to go to Egypt 
when there's no indication that he was afraid. I mean, what would he be afraid of? The text doesn't tell us for sure, but there are two possibilities in my mind, with the second one being the most likely. Number one, nations were very territorial in that time, very defensive. Jacob would have been traveling to Egypt with a clan of 70 people with him. Perhaps he would be fearing that maybe Egypt's going to think we're coming to attack and they'll respond in attacking us. Maybe that's why he would be fearful. Second reason he may be fearful and which I think is the more prominent reason, Jacob knows the experience of his family in Egypt. Both his grandfather and his father had experience with Egypt, both of which were in the middle of famines just like he's in right now. You remember first Abraham's blunder. He and Sarah go to Egypt and he lied about Sarah being his wife. Well, she's my sister. Take her as you will. And then Isaac, in the middle of a famine, he's tempted to go to Egypt to find food, but God explicitly tells him not to, and that was Genesis 26. Do not go to Egypt. See, Jacob knows Egypt is the place my grandfather made one of the biggest mistakes of his life. Egypt is the place my dad was explicitly told, do not go to Egypt. You know, I'm excited to see my son after all these years, but I'm a little worried about going to see him there. And God says, the timing is right. Do not fear to go to Egypt. And then in verse three to five, God gives him these future promises that I've been referring to. His promises that he gives here are fourfold. Number one, first, verse three, go to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. Now I wonder if that sounds odd to you. Go to Egypt, I will make you into a great nation there. Well, it should sound odd because this patriarchal family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're used to God giving them this promise of I'm going to make you into a great nation. But the promise has always been I'll make you a great nation in the promised land. Egypt is not the promised land. Canaan's the promised land. Egypt is Vegas. God's word has been stay out of Vegas. And so to hear God now say, go to Egypt and I'll make you a great nation there. Well, it was surprising. But it is the first promise. And it also gives cue to Jacob. This is not just going to be a, a QT, a, a quick trip to Egypt. Now, this is going to be more like a, a DMV, if you will. You'll be there a while. Go to Egypt. I'll make you a great nation. God's second future promise comes in verse 4. Go to Egypt. I'll make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you. God is emphatic here in the text. I myself will go. It's even clearer in the original language, something like I, yes, even I myself will go with you, Jacob. Carter and I went on an anniversary trip last year out west. There were several stops, one of which was Vegas. Now, don't judge me. I didn't do any gambling while I was there. And even if I did, I wouldn't tell you because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> we were only there for one night, and that was long enough. 
Now listen, I don't want to sound like some country hick that's from the sticks and is not aware of what's happening in the world. I trust the word of God enough to believe the depravity of man and how it plays out in the world enough to know what happens in places like Vegas, the unashamed public debauchery that takes place there. For a closer experience, frankly, just go to downtown Asheville. Now I love Asheville, but there's no secret concerning the anti-God worldview that explicitly fills the culture of many of these places and sadly others exponentially growing all around us. You go to Vegas, which Collier and I did. Imagine planning to go to one of these type places and your grandmother, who is the godliest person you know, calls you and says, I hear you're going to Vegas I'm coming too. Well, that changes things because it's one thing to see these things for yourself and all their sinfulness, but it's a whole nother other thing for the purity of your godly grandmother to see them with you. Jacob is headed to Egypt. Polyistic, polytheistic, pagan known, sensuality driven, political powerhouse of the time, swimming in idolatry, Egypt and the God of holiness, moral purity, righteousness, perfection, calls and says, I'm going with you. After we left Vegas, frankly, I felt like I needed a shower, a moral detoxifying. It's the flare, the pomp, the busyness, the system of sin structures that are in place disturb my soul. I felt small. I felt the minority position of my worldview. My conscience felt distressed. My heart broke for the people on the street that I saw engaging in such things. I felt outnumbered. And all of it had a profound spiritual draining effect to my soul. Jacob is going to Egypt and God has promised to go with him. And listen, for God, Egypt's filth does not prevent him. Their godlessness does not deter him or drain him and Egypt's power does not intimidate him. He is the God of righteousness who crushes the wicked. The God of truth who is never outnumbered. He's the God in strength who is self-sustaining, not dependent on anyone. He is the God of power who brings down the exalted ones of the world. And this God tells Jacob, let's go to Egypt. And yes, let's go because I'm coming too. I'll make you a great nation. I'm going with you. Number three, future promise is the second half of verse four. And I will also bring you up again. Now, this is very personal to Jacob, but it's also very corporate to the nation of Israel. God promises to bring both Jacob and the nation he will build there out of Egypt eventually. Yes, Canaan is the promised land, but it is in Egypt that God will produce and multiply his people, but he will not leave them there. He will bring them up again. 
And then the fourth and final future promise is the last phrase of verse five. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Here's the promise to Jacob concerning his death. Jacob is going to Egypt and God tells him, Jacob, you will die there. Which gives more explanation to his third promise. I'll bring you up again. When God promises to bring Jacob up again out of Egypt, it's a promise that he plans to keep while Jacob's in a coffin. Now that might sound morbidly disturbing perhaps, but when you actually think about what God is promising here, it's very sweet. See, God's promises and his actions to Jacob extend beyond his physical life, beyond into death. God tells Jacob, I will be with you when you go down to Egypt and I will be with you when you leave Egypt, even through death. Even after Joseph has closed your eyes, I will still be with with you. Though your earthly body will die, my faithfulness never will for you. I will walk with you in Egypt. I will walk with you out of Egypt. Even in death, I will not leave you there. This is the hope for all who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That death has no hold on the one God holds on to. God's hand resting on the believer is too big for death to have any grip. The hymn, Rock of Ages, sings of this great hope that Christians have as we close our eyes in death. It says, quote, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes are closed in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, See thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's why it matters what songs we sing, because it teaches us doctrine. It teaches us security and rock of ages, a cleft, a surety of our salvation and a rock of Jesus. I hate to break it to you, but compared to heaven, Greer is Vegas. And even in death, if you are found trusting in Christ, God will not leave you here. Some of you perhaps feel more than others the closeness of death on your doorstep. Some of us may have it this afternoon. But some of us Maybe feel it closer than others. And if you feel like you're closer to death than others, hear God's promise to Jacob. Think about how he has walked with you till now. Think about how he has been with you until now. And hear God promise that even after death, he will not abandon you now. He will bring you home. There's an old hymn. I, want, I know some of you know it, not probably young ones know it. I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun, right? God will not leave you in Egypt, in Greer. Wherever the place of your death is, he will not leave you there. There's a home in glory land. Here we see God's future promises to Jacob as he commands him to go to Egypt. Jacob, there you will die, but I will bring you up again. And through it all, I will be with you. 
and I will build a great nation from you. Now, Jacob is 130 years old at this point. Why should he believe any of that? Four future promises. Why should he find them trustworthy? Jacob has been a wanderer a lot of his life. He's finally settled down. He's become fairly wealthy. Things are in place. And now God wants him to pack up all he knows and all he has in the twilight of his life and go and resettle in a pagan land. Do you hear what God is asking him to do? Jacob, you're settled down. You've become wealthy. Things are in place. Your family is all around you. But I want you to go to a foreign pagan land even when you're 130 years old. Listen, there's a mission sermon there and a retirement sermon there. We build and we build and we build to retirement where everything's settled, all of the families around us, we're fairly wealthy at the end of our lives, everything is set and we're gonna ride in the glory land and maybe perhaps that's what God would have you, but maybe God would look at you in your retirement and say, go to Egypt for the sake of the nations. I have people there that I want to build. Maybe that's not God's path for you but don't assume that it's not. Jacob receives the promises to go to Egypt. How can Jacob trust these promises from God? Jacob can trust God's future promises by remembering God's fulfilled promises. This is the second part of the chapter. Notice secondly, God's fulfilled promises to Jacob. Now this is seen in chapter 46, verses five through 27. Now, I'm not going to read this section. Most of it is a recorded genealogy of Jacob. And we think, perhaps, what does a genealogy tell us about God fulfilling his promises? Well, actually, a lot. So just to break it down a little bit here, verse 5 through 7 shows Jacob's obedience. He picks up all he has, his children, grandchildren, possession. He, lives, he leaves for Beersheba. He heads to Egypt. And then we read in verse 8, now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, and then it lists them out name by name. You can see them in your Bible if you have it open. I won't read each name. I wanna point out to you what is most significant here. In this genealogy here in Genesis, we have four women by whom Jacob had children. Verse 15 is Leah, verse 18 is Zilpah, verse 19 is Rachel, verse 25 is Bilhah. Now remember, Rachel and Leah are sisters. Jacob mostly loved Rachel. But he also was married to Leah, had children through Zilpah and Bilhah as well. Now, I'll remind you, as I did when we were actually going through those chapters, this was not God's design for marriage, nor did he approve of it. But it was through these children that he accomplished his greater purposes. Now, moms, grandmothers in the room, you love talking about your children and grandchildren, so enjoy hearing about Jacob's for a second. First, he had children through Leah, through Leah, I'm just breaking down this big genealogy section here in summary form. Through Leah, Jacob had six sons, 25 grandsons, and two great-grandsons. 25 grandsons, crazy. Next, Zilpah. Zilpah was Leah's servant. Through Zilpah, Jacob had two sons, 11 grandsons, one granddaughter, and one great-grandson. Then, then comes beloved Rachel. Through Rachel, he has two sons and 12 grandsons. 
Finally, Bilhah, he has two sons, five grandsons. Now, if your head's spinning at this point, let me summarize for you his genealogy here. It doesn't include daughters and potential all the granddaughters, but just from this list alone, we find Jacob has 12 sons, 53 grandsons, four great-grandsons, and one granddaughter. And you thought Christmas shopping for your family was hard. Tola, what'd you get from Papa Jacob this year? I got a stone with my name on it. Arodi, what'd you get for Christmas? I got a stone with my name on it. <laughs> Jamin, what'd you get? I got a stone with my name on it. This is a lot of people for one family. Verse 27 says it's 70 people moving to Egypt. Now, if you're like me, I wonder, why would Moses, the writer of Genesis, break up this narrative by listing out all these names? Isn't the point to have Jacob meet Joseph? We've been waiting over 20 years for this. Why is this genealogy stuck right in the middle of the story? This seems misplaced. If you're trying to build climax, you don't detour it by a list of boring names. Well, we know nothing in God's word is misplaced. This is purposeful. By including names like Laban and Leah and Rachel, Moses is reminding us, the readers, where Jacob has come from. He takes us back to Jacob's origins, the path that he's walked. You remember, just quickly, Genesis 27, 28, before Joseph, Jacob is married, before he has children, before he's wealthy, he steals his brother's birthplace. Isaac blesses him with this inheritance, and he says in the blessing, Genesis 27, 28, may God give you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. And now through Jacob's son, Joseph, Jacob is receiving the fatness of the land. Under Joseph, people are serving him and nations coming to bow before him. And then remember, Jacob's on the run from his brother Esau, Genesis 28. And there at Beersheba again, here's that famous place, 28, 13 of Genesis, God promises to give Jacob land, offspring, one day just like his dad and grandfather. And then in Genesis 35, 10, God changes his name and further promises to give him land, a nation springing from him, kings in his line, offspring as sand on the seashore. See, that was Jacob's past. Past promises. When everything was said, this is going to happen to you. And now at the close of his life, he's headed to Egypt. And this is critical. Don't miss this. As he's headed to Egypt, Moses points back, look at all the people behind Jacob. Look at all the possessions and the wealth. Look at how God kept his promise. With him, he takes possessions and blessings. And more so, look at the descendants with him. He's a man that was on the run most of his life with only the shirt on his back. And now he's a man that's gone from just him to 70 family members. And the main point is not look what Jacob has. The main point is look at how God has been faithful to fulfill his promise. With each name listed in the genealogy, we see multiplying family trees that God has promised and has now fulfilled. So why should Jacob trust these future promises in Egypt? Well, all he has to do is look behind him and all the people that God has fulfilled for him. 
Christian, why should you trust anything that God says for you in the future? All you have to do is look behind you at where God has been faithful to you in the past. God's future promises are trustworthy because of his fulfilled promises. And finally, and this is the final point, what we see in the last part of this text is this, and God's fulfilled promises give you eager anticipation for his final promises. Now we're almost done here, but do not miss this next point. This is where it climaxes here in the story. This is the part of the narrative where you have the big family reunion. And you know how this works, right? The big distant family comes together. You go through the potluck line. The KFC bucket is empty first. You go down and sit with your immediate family that you see all the time. You have some dessert and then you wave at the distant family as you're going out the door. Sure was good to see y'all till next year. You know how this works. This family reunion is special. It's been over 20 years that Jacob has thought Joseph is dead. And we see this taking shape in Genesis 46 and verse 28 and following. So look in your Bible, Genesis 46, verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen and they came into the land of Goshen. Then, jo Jake, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented him to tell him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my, brother, my brothers and my father's household, who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we are and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now let's just stop right there for the sake of time. I'm not gonna read the rest of it. But in chapter 47, one through 12, it tells of the brothers going to stand before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh giving them all the prosperity of the land, allowing them to stay in Egypt and telling them, you take the best part of the land and you can even have somebody come and work for me and see, oversee my livestock. It works out well. There's a lot of details there that we could stop on but for the sake of time, here's what I want you to notice most. The these few details. Judah is sent ahead of Jacob to prepare the way. He arranges the spot. He makes sure all is ready. He prepares Joseph so that everything is smooth for Joseph and Jacob to meet. And then in verse 29 and 30, Jacob and Joseph finally meet. We see them embrace. They weep. They talk. Verse 30 shows Jacob a happy man. He basically says, yeah, I can now die happy. And then in verse 30 to 34, the attention turns to the family standing before Pharaoh. And it's serious when they stand before Pharaoh because what if he rejects them? He's the most powerful man in the world. They need this to go well. So Joseph coaches them on what to say. And it goes extraordinarily well for them. He gives them all the land. If this isn't a happy ending, I don't know what is. The brothers are together. Jacob, Joseph reconciled. They have the land, everything at their fingertips. I mean, look at Judah. 
changed man that has gone from betraying Joseph to now preparing the way for him. Look at Joseph and the exalted position that God had promised to him 20 years later in a dream, earlier in a dream. Look at Jacob, finally settled down, living in the fulfilled promises of God. Look at the brothers, reconciled, living together. Look at the land. Under Pharaoh, they're allowed to roam freely in all the prosperity that they could ever want. And look at God, arranging it all and promising to be with them. All appears well. And this is where you don't want to miss it. Is this the final promise of God? To restore his people and to give them fellowship in Egypt? It certainly seems like it's great. It could just close the book, it's done. But there's one big problem left unresolved. Egypt is not the garden. You say, what garden? Have you forgotten the garden already? Oh, how the glimmers of this world make us forget a glorious kingdom to come. Remember the broader context of Genesis? The people have been kicked out of the garden of God, out of perfect fellowship with him because of their sin. And they're on their way back to the garden through the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Ultimately, because God promised there would come one from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent that originally tempted them in the garden. And they're heading back to the garden, but according to this text, we might think, is Jacob the promised one? Is Egypt the new garden of God? It seems great for them. Well, spoiler alert, Jacob will die. Joseph will be forgotten. And their ultimate destiny in Egypt is not prosperity, but slavery for 400 years. Read in Exodus about that. See, the people are living off the fatness of the land in harmony together. They still need to be made right with God though. They still need the savior to come to reverse the curse. They still need the serpent to be crushed, the final garden to come. The serpent killer is still en route. God's final promises were still anticipated by his people. Brothers and sisters, this fulfilled promise of God that we see in scripture gives us eager anticipation for the final promise. The ultimate promise to fully restore to himself his people where we will live in perfect fellowship with him and we still wait for that to come. And this picture of prosperity that they are receiving in Egypt is meant to point us to an eternal reality. Where Judah prepares the way, we see Jesus prepare the way for his children. Where Joseph serves as an earthly savior for his brother, Jesus serves as an eternal savior for all who would turn away from sin and trust in him. Though Jacob's lived an imperfect life, he receives the promise and it's God's grace through Jesus as we have our only ground of hope through our imperfect, in our imperfect lives. Look at Pharaoh, the judge, receiving this family because of Joseph's interceding for them. So God, the judge, will receive anyone who comes trusting that Jesus is interceding for them. The brothers are living in harmony and we seek a family where grace and peace rule in our hearts. 
And as they enjoyed this land of prosperity in Egypt, we look to the final golden shore, a land beyond this one. I close with this verse. I want you to remember this verse. Brothers and sisters, their earthly prosperity points to an eternal promise still to come. This is what the patriarchs believed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all believed Egypt wasn't it. Hebrews eleven thirteen says this. These, talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. People of God, look at the past promises of God and look forward to his final promise, the city that he has prepared for you. Let's pray. God, I am amazed at your kindness to be so faithful, to give us promises that never fail. Promises that we can look back on in the past that give us surety and and hope for future promises. Lord, we do look forward to the day where we will be in the glory land that outshines the sun. Lord, we pray that you would Give us hope in our hearts as we walk as exiles. Lord, I pray for individuals who have never trusted in Christ. I pray that they would look beyond this land, beyond the pleasures and treasures of this land and see a kingdom that is set in the distance that they could have if they would trust in him. Bring about these things, Lord. Hasten the day where Jesus will split the sky and take us home. We pray in Christ's name, amen.